Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom. And I'm Rachel, a mentor to kids in foster care. We're hard at work at bringing you season two, which will feature interviews with Diamond, who was adopted into a loving family of two incredible women as a self-described gay foster kid. Kristen, who after a family death became a single foster mom in her 20s when she took in her niece, a teenage girl. Denise, a longtime foster volunteer as a court-appointed special advocate known as a CASA in California, and many more. In the meantime, we have this bonus episode for you to enjoy, thanks to Decolonize Everything. Host Rebecca, who actually helped us get our start in podcasting through her work with House of Pod, invited me onto her show to talk about decolonizing family, especially as it relates to foster care. In our conversation together, we push the boundaries of family, reframe foster care, confront power dynamics and savior complex in foster families, and so much more. Let's support the important work Becca is doing to have these vital conversations around decolonizing by following and subscribing to Decolonize Everything. And as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts, whether that's over on our Instagram page at Just as Special or our website is justaspecial.com. Hello and welcome to Decolonize Everything. My name is Rebecca Mendoza-Nunziato, your host and conversation partner. On this show, we start the conversation about decolonization. We're disrupting the status quo by supporting new consciousness and liberation through practical tips and radical ideas. Hi, friends. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is 2021, (laughs) and it's been a minute. Since I have been here with you in your ears, but thank you so much for listening today. I am currently on the land of the Pawtucket and Massachusetts people in what we call Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today's episode is about decolonizing family. We ask the question, how can I be a good relative? So for example, I think one way that family has been colonized is through this idea of this nuclear family, right? And that there's particular roles and particular requirements to to be met. That individual family might be self-sufficient. It is probably has some kind of head, patriarchal male head of the family. And there are certain ways in which that family operates within the boundaries of the family and other ways to exist outside of those boundaries. And this episode will just begin to kind of trouble those definitions, bring to bear some other ways of looking at the thing. But I just want to invite us to really explore what family means. How are we in relationship with one another? It feels extra important during a pandemic in a time where we are so careful in deliberating and determining who gets to be a part of our family, a part of our pod, a part of our inner circle. (laughs) Of course, there's a practical aspect in figuring out who we can trust and how we can be safe and careful, but these questions have already existed. How do we invite intimacy? Who do we keep at an arm's length? How are we related to one another? How do those relationships go beyond human and human-centric ways of connecting? And that might be in connection with nature, animals, 
in our own backyard and around the world. But today I'm starting a conversation looking at family, particularly through the lens of foster care with a friend of mine named Natasha Pepperell. Natasha is the founder of Just as Special, a place to learn about foster care from diverse perspectives. She's also the co-host with her sister, Rachel, of Just as Special podcast, which was selected for Amped and House of Pods podcast incubator for women of color, which was how I got my start in podcasting the year before. So be sure to check out Just as Special, the podcast, and also the amazing resources online. We'll be sure to share those links in the show notes and on social media. Uh, But without further ado, welcome, Natasha. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, well, why don't we start, um, and why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about where you're coming from and um, basically what our listeners should know about you. All right, my name is Natasha. I recently became a foster mom to a teen girl. Um, As a woman of color, I feel like there isn't a lot out there for people coming from that perspective when it comes to foster care. Um, A lot of the podcasts that I found that already exist, I feel like really didn't appeal to me as a woman of color. There was sometimes some sexism undertones, I felt like, um, some racism undertones even, and definitely some white savior complex coming out, which really inspired me to launch a podcast called Just a Special, which is a place where people can learn about foster care from diverse perspectives. So I really wanted to provide a space where people could really dive in and learn that also honors all the perspectives in foster care, including the bio parents, right, and foster youth and kids themselves as well. Well, tell me a little bit about how you, how, how did you get involved in this space? How did you become a foster parent? Like what attracted you to this, this work and this, this space? My partner and I felt like we weren't ready for our own biological kids. I had had chronic pain for many, many years and it kind of finally got resolved. And I felt like, oh, I finally got my body back. I don't want to like complicate things. So that's kind of why we went the fostering route because we felt like we were ready to kind of take that next step. Like we had a home and all of that set up. But we didn't really feel like it was time for us to have our own biological kids. And then I had a friend who worked in the foster care system, and she suggested that I volunteer. And meeting the kids was really big for me because I think, like a lot of people, I had a lot of fear around foster kids before. You know, they were almost this, like, other entity. Um, And then meeting the kids, so I would volunteer and the parents or – foster parents or biological parents could drop the kids off and then for a few hours and leave. So we just had a bunch of kids running around in like a (laughs) government building. And what was really cool to see is like at the end of the day, they really are just kids, right? And what they were really seeking is just a connection and attention from an adult. Mm. Like they were just so hungry for that. Um, I remember there was this one little boy and he was by this Lego bin. And he was maybe, I don't know, like five or six. And he was just so stressed. Like, I could just feel it in him. He was just so stressed. So I came over to him, and I was like, hey, do you want to build something with me? And immediately, he just kind of relaxed a little bit. And, you know, the stress was still there. But then as we played and talked, I could just see him being able to just be a kid. Um, Yeah. And I think that's a huge thing with foster care is a lot of times these kids have high levels of anxiety and stress. And they really do need that comfort and support, you know, from a healthy adult. And they're not always getting that in their lives. Yeah. Oh, man. I so for a couple of years, I worked with a nonprofit um, that housed homeless families. 
and I would work at the front desk and hang out with the kids. But there was something, I think that empathy that really hit me was like, oh my gosh, like, of course you're so stressed. Of course you're scared. Of course you like don't know how to attach and love and feel safe and secure. Um, And that really like helped me see, I don't know, I think children in general, but especially children in really hard situations with such a deeper, a deeper understanding Um, And then also like celebrating when they do like really incredible hard things like, gosh, these kids are so brilliant and resilient. And I just yeah, I I think sometimes, like you mentioned, we talk about them like with so much pity that we don't see like how I don't know how incredible they are and how I mean, kids are just yeah, they're amazing. (laughs) No, I love that point you're making about how we don't always talk about them in terms of their strengths, right? And sometimes we just see their weaknesses and what needs to be fixed. I think that goes back to the savior complex as well. It is really important to celebrate their strengths. So especially having a foster teenager, I think it's so important. And that's something I learned really early on is, you know, she has all of these coping skills from all this life she lived, you know, outside of the system, very unstable. And in some circumstances, she wasn't always honored for these strengths, right? Like she has, she's very stubborn. Right, which can lead to some issues, yeah. but also the reason she survived. Yes. So I, I've been thinking through, like, okay, how can I celebrate, you know, different times when she is stubborn, but it's, you know, for a good thing. Um, or just, you know, she's super tough. So all the time I'll tell her, like, I know you're super tough. Like, I know you don't need me, you know. And that makes her feel a little better, too, because it is hard as any kid, you know, to let your guard down, especially when they're older. And they have all this history of people letting them down over and over again. But to be able to honor, like, hey, I know you can survive on your own. Like, you've already done it. Like, you, you know, you don't need me. And, um, and I think, too, a lot of times with the Savior Complex, why it comes out is a need for simplification. You know, a need for things to be simple and a need for things to be really understandable. So for, I mean, we're 15 years apart, me and my foster daughter, like, that's not a lot of age gap. So in some ways, that's nice because we can relate on a level that she maybe couldn't with somebody a lot older. But in other ways, that can be a little hard, right? Because I'm not her mom. Like, that's very clear to both of us. I'm not her mom. And I tell her, I'm not trying to replace your mom. I know I'm not your mom. Like, that'd be weird if you called me mom. Like, we both agree on that, which is really nice. So, but that's messy, right? There's not a, a term for someone that's, like, filling that role, right? I'm not her aunt. I'm not biological turn anyway. Um, how, how is that going to look in a way that's healthy for both of us? I mean, that phrase really hit me, the you don't need me phrase, because that is, I think, so much of what's happening in the white savior complex is like this really deep, sometimes conscious, most of the time subconscious belief that you need me. And there can be a ton of, you know, ways of describing that need. But I think and I'm curious what you think about this, Natasha, like there is this sense of like, you don't need me because you've learned to survive. But there's also this sense of like, we all need each other. And it's not, you know, it's not this power. I think that power dynamic becomes the complication of white savior, uh, white saviorism, right? Is it's like, I have something you don't have. And that's that like lacking opposed to that asset based um, understanding. But I think part of what your what your show and kind of what you're doing with your work is like rethinking family in a way that says, actually, we all need each other, regardless of like our gender roles or our family composition or our histories, you know? Yes, yes. I think that's at the core is that power dynamic. Mm -hmm. 
And that can make or break a foster family. And I think that's part of the reason most foster families burn out within two years. That's in Colorado. Uh, Some states actually, foster families burn out on average of after eight months. Whoa. Oh, that's so hard for everyone. Jeez. Right. It's hard for everyone, right? Because then the kid has to move. Um, The family has gained all this, you know, knowledge. They've passed all these hoops. It's a long process to become a foster parent. It's, It's a huge loss, not only for the kid, right, but then for the state and county. But um, that power play and power dynamic is huge. And I think a lot of people think, oh, like, you know, my family is going to be better than the family this kid came from. Ooh, yes. I don't think that's always necessarily true, right? And they think, oh, we, we know the right way. Same worry about that. So every family has its own culture, right? regardless of race and ethnicity. Every family unit has its own culture. A lot of times when a bio, biological kid comes into a new foster family's home, it can be easy for the parents to get kind of defensive around when the biological kid talks positively about their parents. Mm. And, and I think that goes back to that um, savior complex thing where you're like, oh, but this parent did something really bad. And it goes back to being okay with the messy, right? No one's all good or all bad. And it's so important for kids to be able to still be able to honor and be proud of their parents because, you know, that's them. Um, And I liken it back to how, you know, if there's a really messy divorce Mm -hmm. and you're telling your kid that you hate your previous partner, Mm -hmm. you're really telling them you hate half of them Mm -hmm. in a way. So if you're, if you can't hold that space of still being positive about the good things that that biological parent did, which, of course, every parent has done some good things, then, you know, where's that getting anybody? It's not getting anyone anywhere. You know, when there is stuff that they're recounting that was really positive, being like, you know what, I can tell your dad really cared about you in that Mm. moment. I think, too, it's so important for foster parents to realize you cannot replace a child's biological parents. Like, that's not our role, um, and it shouldn't even be our goal because... You know, that, that, that connection will just not be replaced at all. Can you share a little bit about when I when I think about biological parents and, you know, kind of the beauty of of being someone's child, regardless of, you know, what that person is going through or, you know, the messy, like you said, the good and the bad and the hard that they that's like all in that space. Can you talk about like how the system is working and not working for those parents because I think that's so central to the way that folks who are volunteering who are fostering who are adopting think about that parent right because it's not just can this person be a good parent in a vacuum it's like we have this system we have these like really messed up realities that folks have to maneuver through and navigate yeah that's that's a great question so one thing is I think there's a misconception that in foster care, like a lot of the kids get adopted where in, I know at least the County I was before um, in the Denver area, it was, I think 96% of kids get reunited with their parents or kin care, meaning someone they knew before they were placed in foster care. So that could be another family member, like an aunt or an uncle, you know, an older sibling, or it could even be like a basketball coach that they knew before under a teacher. And the thinking behind this is that, if at all possible, they really want kids to be with their biological parents. They don't need to be as good as a foster parent, right? But as long as 
you know, certain abuses are not occurring and the child is safe, they really want to make that work. And the system will work with the parent, you know, to try to help get them the support that they need. But the parent also has to prove that, you know, they're going to be reliable and they have to take a lot of steps themselves. So it's not all on the parent, but a lot is still on the parent because they realize, you know, once those supports get pulled, is that parent still going to be stable? Um, So sometimes kids go in and out of foster care, right? So sometimes they might be reunited with parents and then something happens again and the kids pull back out. I think as an outsider, it can be really easy to kind of judge these parents, right? Yep. What a lot of people don't realize is foster care is very cyclical. A lot of these kids in foster care, their their parents were in foster care. Um, a lot of these parents um, who are getting their kids taken away, they didn't have healthy relationships by any means. A lot of them have mental illnesses that aren't being addressed. You know, our healthcare system, I think, is a huge reason why there's a lot of kids in foster care. And then also, too, like, you know, some families living on the brink of survival, one death, right? Like, a lot of times grandma dies and the whole family kind of falls apart because grandma was the primary caregiver, or there's a death in another way, or sometimes there's a divorce, and one of the parents then really, really struggles. So I think it's important to remember that, you know, a lot of times there's these struggles, and how I look at it as, if I had the same life they did, how can I say I would have made different choices? I think that's a very dangerous thing to be able to say, I would have done it differently. Oh, that's so, yeah, that's such a helpful framework, because I think part of, you know, when I think about decolonizing the way we think about the system, which is different from kind of family at large, but the system, you know, you just think of how all those things are interwoven. And like you mentioned, you know, a a grandparent dies, like maybe you lose benefits, like maybe, you know, like all these different pieces. Housing here in Denver, of course, is like a huge issue. Um, Affordability, like cost of living, like all these things compound And it is a system um, through capitalism and through kind of our colonial mentality that is very much like this individualized, like you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And we don't think of, of family as as a network and and even right outside of biological family, like what's that network? Yeah, I think, you know, going along with decolonization, as people of color, sometimes we carry all of these traumas um, that we just don't really take the time to unpack and really be intentional about how we're unpacking it. Um, And I think one of the ways we can really do that is by creating community around us. So when I was going through foster care training, I was filling out a questionnaire and one of the questions was, have you, do you have any unresolved trauma from your childhood? And I had just never thought of that. And you know, I had nightmares since I moved out of my house at 18. And I was like, oh, wow, like I do actually have some abuse that I had in my childhood. Um, and then speaking on another side of it, my family was touched by like gun violence almost a year ago now. And that really opened my eyes to how that one instance can just break a family. And we had a strong community and support network come around us and really help us and rally around us. But if we hadn't had that, you know, I wonder with myself, like, what would I have done, right? You know, I think a lot of times we don't have a lot of experience with people who grow up differently than we do. And it's so vital, I think, to be able to hear those stories and know the realities of people who are different than us. I remember when I was working in in a neighborhood here in Denver, meeting some folks who were doing kinship and learning that they weren't getting the kind of money support that they would have gotten if they were like, you know, a a stranger fostering. (laughs) And I was like, 
whoa, so you've like taken on these two little babies and you're doing it because you knew this person, you know, you're not even family, maybe like you knew this person, and you're trying to support them through their recovery um, from substance abuse. And like, you're a single mom already. So you can't get a job. If you do get a job, you have to pay for childcare. Like just that web of, I won't say impossibility, but it looks like impossibility. <laughs> of mm-hmm. Like, how mm-hmm. do you do this? You know? And so like, Yeah, like you said, creating that community um, in and outside of institutions, whether that's government or religion, like finding ways to support one another. Ultimately, that's the vision, right, is like that we can take care of each other in a way that's really dignifying and beautiful. So, yeah, I think that's a great point of like, we need to make sure that we're helping, but in a very honoring and dignifying way. And a lot of times that means asking, how can I help you? Instead of assuming. Well, I, I think what's so interesting about the, the white savior complex is that it does, it happens in our back, in our backyard, in our neighborhoods, in our, here in Denver, in our city, in our systems, as much as it happens like with um, folks going to other countries, like as missionaries, <laughs> like it's mm-hmm, that same mm-hmm. energy, right? And it is like you just said, like the simple, like a very simple thing is like asking, where do you need support? You are in charge of your own destiny. You know, we are both people that have gifts to bring and challenges in our lives. We have just been so trained in this colonial mentality that seeps into our relationships when we see people as lesser than us. It's so simple and it's so. It's so deep in our bones. It makes me crazy. It is. It really, really is. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, an example of this is like, you know, even how my foster teen likes, I guess you would say, um, I think nourishment is a good word for it, right? Like that family nourishment. So I, I don't know. I didn't like exactly picture how it looked, but it surprised me the ways that she feels loved. So for an example is like the first week we met, um, we like made dinner together. She was super psyched about it to the point that I thought maybe she was being sarcastic. Uh, And then her counselor or someone else on the team was like, Oh yeah, I heard you guys made dinner together. And she really had a blast. And I was like, Oh, she was serious about like how excited she was. Like it was just like shocking to me or, you know, me making her a meal is a huge thing. You know, like if I make her breakfast or lunch or dinner, she's like really thankful for like someone else making her food. Right. But like, that's not necessarily something I would have thought through, you know, and thought like, oh, yeah, the main way she's going to feel my love is like the food I'm preparing for her. Kids definitely feel if you're like pitying them, and they don't want that. You know, a lot of them see themselves as survivors and they see themselves as like, you know, I, I can do anything, you know, better than you maybe even, um, you know, as an adult. I feel like this is so central to the things that I've heard you share, which is this bigger decolonial view of expanding our definition of family. Um, you kind of mentioned the idea of gender roles. Page, I mean, patriarchy is a huge aspect. Is there a man in the home? Is there a father figure? Like some of those mm-hmm. questions. And then also the role of a child. As people that live in the U.S., we see family through such a narrow lens when there have been so many expressions of family and community over time and space. So can you talk a little bit about um, where you're seeing cool examples of, I guess, that decolonial view? I think some people might call it alternative family, but I think we should bring that into like the center more <laughs> as not abnormal, but you know, part of, part of the way that we see family. I love that. I love that. And that's one of my passions as well as like letting people know there's many different types of families. So, you know, within the foster care community, we're seeing more and more same sex couples, which I think is huge. Um, actually the percentage of kids in foster care 
who identify as LGBTQ is higher than the average population of kids. A lot of times it's because um, those kids' parents aren't able to, like, that might be a trigger for them or they might have some trauma around it. So sometimes they get kicked out, right? And so um, so having um, parents who identify as LGBTQ who are foster parents is huge because they can help that child then navigate that, you know, at a very crucial time in their life, you know, often like early teens, late teens, um, you know, having someone that can relate to them in that way is huge. Um, we're seeing more single parent foster families, which I don't know how they do it. You know, I have a partner at home, so I don't know how they do it, but more props to them. And that also, I think, speaks to that need for having that community. It's so important to rally around these single parent foster families. Um, you know, we're seeing more and more biracial foster families, which I think is also huge. You know, many, most of the time, I would say a kid in foster care is not placed with a family of their same ethnicity. So I think biracial foster families, even if it's not the same ethnicity, but just being able to be like, I'm brown too, right? Or, you know, have conversations about racism or race um, is so vital. Or even just, you know, being, I think it's so important to celebrate the culture of a child in a way that they would like to know. And sometimes that's just them being like, you know, my mom makes this really great, you know, recipe that's cultural and being like, oh, that's really, really awesome. That sounds delicious. Um, you know, maybe we can find some, a similar recipe or even ask her, you know, what her recipe is. Yeah. And then I love your question about, you know, what is the role of a child in a family? And I think in foster care, this can get so messy. Um, and I think oftentimes people think, oh, I'm having this kid in my home. They need to be really thankful that they're here. Another another sign of uh, white saviorism is like, you should be thankful. <laughs> they had no choice that they were going to your house. Exactly. But I can't tell you, like, I mean, I've heard stories from foster kids directly of like, you know, I went to someone's home and they basically were like, you know, you should be thankful that you're here. Um, you know, this is my house, this no. is my space, oh. you know, but like the kid doesn't get to choose that they're there, right? So I think having a really warm, welcoming environment is so, so important, you know, and being like, let me show you around the house. So, and then the role of a, of a foster kid, you know, I'm learning more and more is it's not, it's not healthy, nor is it good to expect anything in return from them. And how I look at foster care is as a way for me to personally grow. So any challenge that comes is a growth opportunity for me, and I'm not putting anything on the kid, right? So I'm not like, you know, you need to be giving me some fulfillment in motherhood, you know, in some way or the other. Like, that's that's not what this is about. This is about, like, me having the opportunity to grow, you know, through some challenges. We tell our foster kid all the time, like, we're a family, and we're really happy that you can be part of our family, you know, without ha- trying to have no expectations for her. And like, you'll notice yourself have them just based on your <laughs> of own family of origin. Yeah. Um, but being able to have the intentionality and take the space to step back, I think is so, so important to make sure that you're creating as healthy environment as you can. Mm. Yeah, that's so great. One of my favorite terms is this idea of mutual transformation. And I do think that you know, it's it's sometimes easier to take on this idea that like we're transformed together in relationship when, you know, we're both adults. But I th- but what you just said, like applies that to any age, any like whatever kind of boundaries we're crossing, social boundaries we're crossing, like there's so much opportunity for that transformation 
when we're aware and attentive because yes those expectations are going to rise yes our childhood and our social conditioning is going to say like no this is what family looks like um but we can push through that especially together in community to make a more yeah like a more beautiful and safe world thinking of like safety for kids such an essential thing for all of us you know and and when that's robbed from us oof, to be on the journey of restoring that it is a gift to be on that journey with someone I love what you said about mutual transformation because they say like in foster care training if a hurt happened in relationship it can be healed in relationship but you can't take a child to a place of healing unless you've already begun your own healing and I think that's so so important and part of that is acknowledging you know, like I acknowledge, uh, and in an age appropriate way, you can acknowledge your foster kid. You know, like she knows I go to a counselor. Mm-hmm. See, that's really important. She knows I work on myself. I don't yeah. discuss what I discuss with my counselor with her, right? She doesn't know what we talk about, but I know, like, she knows that I'm working on myself, right? And I, I, I know I'm not perfect. If I make a mistake, I apologize, you know, and I'll be like, you know, I should have done that better. Or if she sees me do something that maybe wasn't the best way to do things. I will acknowledge that with her later too. And, you know, if you don't lean into the messy of your own life, how can you expect to help a child along their life? So yeah, that idea of mutual transformation is huge. And I think can be so healing, right? You can, you can really heal some trauma, right? You're not going to fix everything, nor should the goal really be to fix them, but you can provide an easier groundwork or an easier path maybe for them than they could have had before just by like having some healthy relationships is a huge growth point. I talked to one former foster kid and she said, you can't go somewhere unless you have a place to leave from, Mm. which is so huge. And that makes sense. And when we look at the statistics with foster care, it's true. Um, Most of the kids who end up um, aging out of the foster care system, they live in, in extreme poverty. Many of them end up homeless or in jail And, you know, if you don't have a place to come back to or a place to launch from, it's just so much harder in life. Yeah, there's so much work to do in terms of empathy and healing. And yeah, like even what you shared about counseling is like normalizing that healing journey. And I think every day we have an opportunity to normalize empathy just in the way that we see the world around us, right? It's such important work. It's hard work, which is why we shy away from it. But it's it's so worth it. <laughs> Where else can people be involved in, in ultimately like the more beautiful vision for family? Is there something else we can do? Yes, yes. And this is what I'm so passionate about. Because I think a lot of people think it's like all or nothing, right? Like either you're a foster parent or there's really nothing you can do. But that's simply not the case. And I know a lot of people, they don't want to be a foster parent or they're not in a place that they can be. And that's totally fine. I think what would really reduce the foster family burnout is just more people getting involved, both in um, formal ways, right? Like I talked about how I was a foster care volunteer. The, a lot of times those positions are really flexible. Like I got to choose how many times I went. Like I could go once a month for two hours, you know, or I could go once every two months. It really was, you know, low stakes in terms of time. Yeah. And it was a really good way for me to kind of get involved and test it out. But honestly, for our family, I feel like the biggest supports have been those informal supports. So it's been friends and family. So just being able to call my sister, you know, at the end of a hard day and kind of decompress, you know, how I'm feeling. So. I think, you know, a lot of people, they know someone who is a foster family, right? Or they know of somebody or there's, you know, if they are part of a church or religious community, 
and be really easy to be able to find those people within that community and just offer like, hey, can I bring you a meal once a week, you know, and just take care of dinner for your family? Or, you know, can I come and, you know, spend two hours, you know, so you can go run errands or come clean your house even, like while you guys go out and go to the park. I think there's tons of like little ways like that that doesn't even have to be, a, you know, a set time commitment month to month or week to week, that would be so helpful for other foster families. Or if you have a friend just being like, hey, if you ever need to call me and vent, because it can be very, you know, frustrating, like the system can let you down or you have a really hard day, like I'll be that, I'll be that person for you that you can pick up the phone and just call. Um, I think those are huge and those are really priceless. Oh man, Natasha, well, I could talk to you about this stuff forever. Um, I just, yeah, thanks for modeling such a beautiful way to live. Like it's, your thoughtfulness around it and like the way that you embody these things is just it's really great to watch from from over here (laughs) oh thank you part of what is doing good work is not making a deal big deal out of it right i think it's so important you know not to make a big deal out of these things because ultimately i don't think they're such a a big deal either like a lot of people are like oh you're so selfless for being a foster parent and you know it's not really how i see it i see it as like we had a house we had the space for it you know we didn't want to have our own biological kid for whatever reason at the time. So yeah. I think more normalizing it, too, would be helpful. I do think it can be a good indicator of that white savior mentality is like, hey, everyone, look, look at this thing happening over here. Um, opposed to like, no, this is part of being human and being in community and thinking creatively about how we solve like really serious issues in our world. And yeah, like even that asset based mentality that you kind of described for the kid, like what are they bringing? What are their strengths? Um, Also applying that to ourselves. Like I bring a house, like I bring, you know, the, the gift of, of working through some of my own trauma, you know, like kind of finding the way to just work through those things together. Um, yeah. So um, with just a special, we're also working on creating a nationwide resource database of resources for foster families that will also include ways that people can get involved if they want to be a foster care volunteer. So that is at justaspecial.com that people can either submit a resource if they know of one in their community or find a resource near them or a way they can get involved. Uh, wonderful. Thank you, Natasha, for all all of yourself that you brought to this conversation. Um, I hope some folks have have started to think a little differently about family and foster care and gosh, just all of our roles in kind of being a part of a, of a larger community, um, even outside our biology and then back in it. <laughs> so thank you. I appreciate you a lot. All right. Thanks for joining us. I'll definitely have some good links for you in the show notes today um, so that you can get involved and learn more about fostering in your own community and supporting folks, both foster families, biological families. You can follow us at Decolonize Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and Decolonize Pod on Twitter. 